seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have me, sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother. What's up, monkeys? Monkey Dan here, and welcome to the Live Wild or Die podcast. On this episode, I'm stoked to welcome the wild man, Ash Dykes. And Ash is a Welsh adventurer and explorer. He has three world first records. Three. So the first was he trekked unsupported across Mongolia. The second, he walked the length of Madagascar. And this was both, he did both of these before the age of 25. And then his third official record, he was the first person to walk the entire 4,000 mile length of the Yangtze River. That's the longest river in Asia. And what, what blew my mind is. He did a ton of stuff before all that. So he cycled like 1,100 miles through Cambodia and Vietnam. He trekked to the Himalayas. He cycled 700 miles through Australia. He learned survival in the jungle with the Burmese hill tribe. He cycled the length of Britain. That was 985 miles. He walked 200 miles across Wales in the middle of winter. He's trekked alone through the Alps during winter. He's worked as a scuba diving instructor for two years in Thailand, and he even competed in Muay Thai in Thailand. So he's a full-on wild man, just lives and breathes it. And I first heard Ash on Joe Rogan's show, and he just he oozed this enthusiasm for adventure. And he's lived almost half his life in what we in monkey culture would refer to as misogi. And he's just, he's constantly expanding his imagination and testing himself to see what is possible. And even for all his accomplishments, he's super grounded. He remains super humble. And when hearing him speak, you understand that for him, it's all about the journey. And I really respect how he's giving back to some of the communities he's visited. He's an ambassador of malaria, no more new, excuse me. He's an ambassador of malaria, no more UK. And essentially it's an organization working to eradicate malaria within our lifetime. And spoiler alert, Ash had malaria. My brothers had malaria. One of my best friends has had malaria. So I totally get why he would want to go out and fight this disease. So props to him. Ash has written a book called mission possible. And there's a documentary out that follows his expeditions trekking across Mongolia and there's another, hopefully on the way soon, documenting his epic adventure along the Yangtze. And Ash, has he's out there on the internet a few different places. So you can find him at ashdykes.com. He's on Instagram at ash underscore dykes. And he has a rad YouTube channel as well. And I'll link all this in the show notes. But I just, I really appreciate Ash taking the time to chat with me. I had a wild time talking with him and i'm just i'm stoked to follow the journey ahead so thank you ash and here we go so i wanted to uh i've got like three pages of questions here so if you see me looking down uh i'm yeah, not no i'm not not paying attention but uh i was curious what like what was your childhood like growing up in you grew up in wales i'm assuming yeah like right, what yeah. was that like i mean are you out in nature all the time was your family into doing like you know trekking all things like that what what did that look like um i'd say it was a very typical um and quite normal upbringing you know um 
yeah, we are. There's kind of we're surrounded by nature, but there's lots of villages and towns and, and a few nearby cities. Um, we're on the coast. Um, you know, my mum and my dad, um, not not trekkers, not really into their trekking. Um, they are into their um, fitness, health. Yeah, they're health conscious, I would say. Okay. My dad jogs every morning. He's always sort of trained and exercised. Uh, my mum likes to get out on her bike, you know, go for cy- uh, cycles along the promenade here. Um, I was always just very sporty, so it wasn't really the adventure side. It was just the... Um, the sporty side, you know, I liked my football, my rugby, um, athletics, cross country. Um, and so there was no real signs. Uh, and, you know, I wouldn't be out sort of eating worms and woodlouse sort of <laughs> picking them from the mud, you know, not like a wild, <laughs> a wild kid, but I still like to get out there. And, you know, I guess I had that, um, I just never stopped. If I was going tre- trekking and we were aiming for the mountain, it doesn't matter what the elements were. I had that keep going, um, you know, never give up sort of um, element to me where I would just want to keep seeing what's over the next hill or around the next corner and just push myself as far as I could go. And But yeah. Huh. So what I'm not totally familiar with, kind of like the education system over where you're at, but, you know, here it's like, you go to middle school around like maybe 12 years old and then high school is like kind of 14, 15 to 18. What, right. So what, what did it look like? You're an athlete growing up, you're going through school. And then what, did, what was that transition like between kind of school? And then, you know, I'm looking at your, uh, where is this here? I was looking at your adventure list and it's like, you know, you did all this other stuff. I'm like, when did he, how would you start when you were like 15 or 12 or, you know, when did all this stuff start, you know? Uh, yeah, yeah. So here it goes. So we have the um, primary school and then you go into high school at what you must be about 11 or 12, I think, um, years of age. Um, and then high school is five years. Uh, you finish high school at age 16, but then you can go on for for two years into sixth form or onto college to get the sort of A-levels or the diploma. And that's the transition between high school and university. And so it was during this transition that I decided that I didn't want to go to university. Um, just, I believe so many people learn in, in many different ways. And, and for me, I, I just didn't learn from being spoken to by the teacher. You know, I needed to experience it, um, which was good and bad, really bad because, you know, even if they say don't do that because this will happen, I'll still end up doing it and learning from my own mistakes, you know. And so I had this idea to, you know, whilst everyone was sort of going on to the typical sort of either the military or um, university or just the typical job here in, in North Wales, I just had this sort of unorthodox idea. Um, it was a bit of a risk, you know, I couldn't really talk to many people that were doing that at that time. Um, especially because I was only 16 years of age. Oh, wow, okay. And I had this idea, you know, to go out traveling, explore different cultures, traditions, you know, learn about myself and how I handle certain situations and scenarios. But it was a lot easier said than done because, um, again, I don't come from a, a financial background either. So, you know, all money raised, I would have to work my ass off for and, I was working in a fish and chip shop. I was working as a waiter. I was working as a lifeguard. 
over 240 hours a month um, cycling on my little bicycle on the windy and wet coast of North Wales to and from work all the time and just just saving as much money as I possibly could. And that was from the ages of 17, 18 to 19 when I finally quit my job. Um, there was a friend who also wanted to join me uh, and that was it. We both set off for for the first lot of travels and for the, the beginning of the, all of these adventures at age 19. Is that, is like this kind of like, I don't know, I've heard it called like a gap year and is this adventure culture something that's maybe a little more common over in Wales and the British Isles? Whereas here, you know, it's like growing up, it was like, get a job, go to college. Like if you didn't do that, you were just scum, you know, is it, is it a little more like of a thing growing up for you? I don't know if it is, you know, um, I think probably now it is more of a thing. You know, I think people are definitely looking to spend money more on experiences rather than materialistic things. Um, and looking to, you know, spend money on travels rather than purchasing a house straight away. You know, I think that is more of a thing now. We're certainly going that way. But, um, but no, it, it was a case of like, what are you doing? I remember telling my friends, you know, being super enthusiastic about the plan, saying, yeah, I'm going to go to, to China and going to trek the Great Wall and then I'm going to go to Macau and do the world's highest bungee jump. I'm going to eat gruesome things. I'm going to learn how to survive. And they were like, you know, why? And what are you going to do then once you've done the world's highest bungee, once you've trekked the Great Wall? You know, what then? And I'm like, what? What do you mean? What then? These are these are cool experiences, man. It doesn't matter. I'm not thinking about what then. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking of just living my life and and experiencing as much as I could. But what they meant is, how will that help you get a job? You right. know, once you've done all of this cool stuff and you run out of money, which you will, and you're forced to come back to North Wales, back to Square One, whilst we would have moved on with our lives and our careers. What then? So that's kind of what they what they meant, and I took that on board. You know, I was whilst I was lifeguarding uh, and saving the money, I was also taking on my scuba diving qualifications, and I was trying to build myself up to a level where I could actually find work abroad, so that I could fund my travels without needing to come back home to find a job to raise the funds to travel again. And so I was thinking smart about it. You know, I was kind of like, maybe if I could do scuba diving and then like snowboard instructor and move with the seasons as I travel. Um, But other than that, you know, I saved up as much money as I could, which wasn't a lot. And I had this big travel plan for a certain amount of years, spending a few pounds per day. That's a few dollars. And uh, (laughs) all very low budget, shoestring budget, in fact. And that was it. Just a teenager, age 19, still spotty. You know, not even developed a proper beard, and, and, and off I went. <laughs> I'm still working on mine, man, and I'm 35, so I feel you. Yeah. <laughs> what? You know, I kind of I had a similar upbringing where I was more of an athlete, and then I got into, right. like, adventure kind of post-high school, you know, 18, 19. Um, got you. I, I ended up being a wilderness ranger and wildland firefighter out west here in oh, the nice. States. But, um, That's quality. You know, what for me was, like, looking back now, I'm like, I wish I would have had the imagination and like that vision that you had kind of earlier on. What, what even kind of sparked those initial concepts for traveling like that? You know, how did you get that idea even? Yeah. Um, it's a good question. 
I think it was probably from maybe various stories that I heard, um, maybe various documentaries as well, you know, sort of nature programs and whatnot, and not wanting to be sat on the couch watching it, but wanting to physically be out there amongst it. Um, magazines, the internet, TV of just like looking at these different cultures and tribal communities and just being like, whoa, you know, I, I, I just think I was just absolutely fascinated by it all. And I really wanted to to head in that direction and and uh, just throw myself in it, just really absorb it, soak it up and experience it to the fullest. And, you know, when I first had the plans to travel initially, it was the excitement of breaking free from the routine, you know, doing something different, knowing that when I'm traveling, I will find so many opportunities that school never taught me. You know, there'll be so many more ways to earn an income that isn't in the typical sort of careers advisor lecture um, that I just knew I would have been broadening my mind and I would come back a changed person. You know, I think I wanted that independence. I wanted that freedom. I wanted that time to, to myself, you know, um, I love learning from other people. So I knew that that would be a thing when I'm on the go, you know, like for example, I have no military background at all. And I think a lot of people assume that I do come from a military background with, um, these um, ex- expeditions and sort of survival-based adventures that I've been doing. But, you know, a lot of what I have learned has been from the locals along the way. Um, you know, only a, a small fraction of what they know because they are so knowledgeable. They don't use it for like a certain scenario like the military. They use it every day to survive. And so there was just so much to try to take in. Um And yeah, all of this as a whole just excited me, you know, and just the adventure and even the danger excited me. Like there'll be some sketchy scenarios, but what a cool story. Um, And I always kind of liked that saying, you know, the biggest danger in life is not doing what you want to do now in the bet that you can buy yourself the freedom to do it later. Like I came across a lot of people who were looking to travel and do these adventures, you know, in the future. But right now they were focusing on their career, and you know, and, and equally that is really cool. But at the same time, like some of the stuff that I look back at now that I did when I was 19, I don't know if I would do them now. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you if you wait till you're 30, 40, 50, 60, you know, you can travel at whatever age you're going to be different. You know, you might not be bothered about doing the world's highest bungee and sharing a 16 bed dormitory. You might want your five star hotel (laughs) and you might want to fly in your (laughs) your own private jet as an adrenaline instead of, you know, the bungee. You know, I just, I just feel that um, you might be looking at the more luxury sort of cuisines rather than eating a tarantula (laughs) that you've just found. (laughs) I wasn't expecting to. So I do think there's that, um, you know, that mindset thing that will change for sure. Yeah, I, was t- I talked to another guy. He's like this really high level trainer down in Texas, and he had a really good kind of point to what you're just saying. It's like people they spend their health gathering wealth, and then they have to spend all their wealth regaining their health, you know, later in life. So I wow. feel you, man. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's a good one. Yeah. Um. It is that, and I think sometimes you have got to. I think you have got to go go for it, and it was easy for me, um, easier because 
I was young, so I had no, I had no girlfriend, I had no wife, I had no kids, I had no responsibilities really. I didn't have a um, a house, and so I was able to, you know, everything that I owned uh, was literally on my back in a in the form of a backpack, you know, um, and and so that's and as you grow grow older, you have more responsibilities, more commitments. There's more people involved in your life, and so you won't take as many risks. Um, Whereas when I was 19, man, I was taking crazy risks. I look back now and I'm glad I did because I needed to go there to get to where I am now. But some of them were, you know, crossing (laughs) machete in hand, sort of hacking through the jungle from Thailand to Myanmar with no visa at a time where Myanmar was closed to everyone. (laughs) You know, trekking the Himalayas with no permit. So that we were told, you know, this is this is stupid of you to trek with no permit. But just in case you come across the Pakistan army, which were on the border uh, in the Himalayas, you know, you need to get down on your knees, uh, put your thumbs behind your ears and say Allah Harigbi repeatedly, which means Allah have mercy on me. And they might not shoot you. Um, and so, you know, all of these little risks that I look back on and think. Yeah, maybe I was a little bit naive and thinking, oh, yeah, I'll remember that. Yeah, it's not going to happen anyway because I'm going to hide and they're not going to find me. Sure, sure. <laughs> you know? um, but, yeah, that's the time that you want to do it, I guess. And if you escape with your life, then what a great story. Oh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> One question I was curious is how how's it evolved from, like, you know, being 18, 19 and just going for it to – now where you're almost, I mean, you're really your professional explorer, professional adventurer. How, how has that changed? Even like the actual expeditions where like Yangtze, you know, I was, I was just watching the trailer, man, that, that mm. upper Yangtze, man, it's epic. Wild. Can, can you, can like, I mean, I guess pre COVID, but is that a place people visit or is that just, just totally off the radar? That's kind of totally off the radar. Um, and you need, so it took me actually two years to plan. And the most sensitive part was that area that you're talking about, especially where the source of the Yangtze is. Right. You need to be backed by the authorities. You need to have uh, government permission. You need to have the Three Sources National Park on, involved. You need to have the Green Development Foundation um, there. You need the National Park Rangers. So all of this together with the right stamped and signed documents um, no one really goes through all of that to go there for a few week holiday, you know, it's, sure, uh, sure. and then you got the locals so scared cause they've not seen any Westerners out there. For, I don't know how long that they will radio into the next skirt and the next skirt until there's phone signal in which they'll call the police. Oh, wow. It takes like at least six to seven hours to get to you then. And I was questioned many a times, but thankfully because of the documents and because of the two year preparation <laughs> and planning and gathering the right team, um, they were able to drop us back where they picked us up and we were able to continue. So it was very wild. It was very sensitive. Um, We needed a lot of support and Chinese locals on our side to include the government. But yeah, you know, once you've got through that and and you're there, it is wild. I felt very vulnerable to the bears, to the wolves, just to the sheer vastness and, and, and harshness of the surrounding area. But um, beautiful for sure. Stunning. Yeah, I just, I'd never, you know, I, when I hear you talk about the upper Yangtze and the headwaters, I'd never, I couldn't really picture it in my mind. And then once I, you know, when I was watching this trailer, it's like, 
oh my gosh, man, that's just, it's unreal. You know, that's, that's what I crave. Yeah. So it's like, man, yeah, I wonder, you're I wonder... right. it's, it's quite difficult, isn't it? Because when you think of China, you of course think of the cities and right. maybe the air pollution and the massive people, but China's a massive, massive place. Um, and towards the West, you know, in Qinghai province, north of Tibet, it is wild. You can go days without seeing anyone. Which sounds mental, you know. Oh yeah, it's absolutely. A population of one point four billion people. Right, right. And so, I guess getting back to what I was really trying to ask was, how did you know, kind of these earlier expeditions where it's just you, a buddy, maybe, and then to yeah. Yangtze, where it's like you're filming a documentary. There's, it's just much more logistically involved. Like, how has that changed? I guess the way you experience the process, like. Are you actually more present because you're you're kind of being more intentional about you know analyzing and sharing the story, or does it become like a distraction, even a burden? Mm, yeah, a very good point and great question. Really, it it kind of the transition was was it, in some ways uh, it just happened so organically and kind of by mistake in a way. You know, when I first set off and I was just you know picking up ten dollar bicycles no gears, no suspension, sort of not even a pump, no puncture repair kit, no lights, no helmet, reckless, you know. Um, we were spending about $2 a day, uh, you know, and off we went. We would cycle across Cambodia. We would cycle across Vietnam. We were hit by mopeds, dodged by lorries, chased by dogs, you know, and all of this was for the pure adventure of it, but also because we had such a low budget that we couldn't really afford the buses. Right, right. And so we were kind of like, you know, let's – let's have an adventure let's get off the tourist route let's stop spending a lot of this like i look back now and it's not a lot of money for the bus at all but back then it was a lot of money and so we were like let's have an adventure let's save some pennies um and so all of that it, it i wasn't even on instagram i don't know that was instagram 2010 i don't even, i don't know man i'm late to the game myself so yeah yeah <laughs> facebook I, I wasn't even posting on facebook to be honest uh, it was just for the pure passion um, in fact, I didn't have any, <laughs> I didn't even have a smartphone. I had like the little Nokia phone, right, right. so I couldn't even post anyway. Um, unless I got to some sort of internet cafe, you know, where you put the coins inside and it popped them. It was only 10, 10, 11 years ago, but we've moved on so fast. Right. Um, and so it was all kind of like that. It was then, you know, after the Vietnam cycle, I was learning how to survive in the jungle with the Burmese hill tribe. And that's when we crossed with machete in hand from Thailand to Myanmar, we were trekking the Himalayas. We were cycling across Southern Australia, hitchhiking across North Australia after we broke down in the outbacks um, and had to sort of ditch the car panicking because we only had a bit of water and it took us 13 hours before we saw our first vehicle. Um, and so it was all like these early, quite reckless adventures. And then I settled down for two years. I acted on that previous plan that I had here in Wales you know, with all of the lads saying, yeah, but what then? What happens when you come back? And we've all kind of moved on. It was, it was time to act on that plan. Um, and I lived in Thailand then for two years as a master scuba diving instructor um, and a Muay Thai fighter. And it was a great lifestyle. I loved it. But as the two years went by, there was a, a little niggle, man. There was There was something in me that, you know, really missed all of these adventures you know, my time with the Burmese Hill Tribe, cycling Vietnam, that lack of routine, that sense of adventure, that whole feeling that you don't know what's going to happen the next day. I really missed it. 
to a point where I'd be scuba diving with students, you know, um, and scuba diving can be dangerous. And my mind's my mind is on planning other adventures. You know, it's not on like, are they doing okay? It was, it's on other adventures. It's come. And that's when it became dangerous. And I thought I, you know, need to stop taking people out diving because I'm thinking too much about the next thing. Um, until it came to the point where I, I needed to act on it. And this was the transition then from doing it all for fun and as a passion, all on a low budget to then making that transition and trying to make a, a career out of it, um, which was within Mo- Mongolia. So Mongolia was my first world first record. I was 22 when I started to plan it. Um, I was attempting to become the first person to walk across the entire length, uh, 1,500 miles. It'd be three weeks over the Altai Mountains, five weeks across the Gobi Desert, three weeks over the Mongolian steppe, all whilst pulling a trailer, carrying all of my provisions needed to survive, which came up to um, 160, uh, 120 kilograms, which I think is 260 pounds. That US. sounds about right, yeah. Uh, which was heavy, you know, which oh, was yeah. heavy. And the, there was lots of doubts. There had been a military, you know, a Navy soldier, a desert explorer who had attempted this journey three times, was evacuated on all three occasions. Um, this was enough to put me off. I thought, who the heck do I think I am? You know, a scuba diver living kind of on a, on a living the beach bum life, really, just on a island, you know. And so I was scared, man. I had my worries and my doubts and just didn't think I... I could do it. And so Mongolia, I got out of my mind. I was like, I'm not going to do this. It's not happening. Uh, But then I, you know, realized just because no one's found a way to do it, you know, doesn't mean it can't be done. I focused full sort of attention um, in my preparation, my training and the logistics. And then I realized that, heck, you know, if I complete this journey, you know, if I do it and I, and I succeed, you know, maybe there's a way to monetize that journey and turn my passion into a career. Um, and luckily, you know, I did, I did unfortunately almost die on that journey, but I made it, you know, I'm alive. Um, I did succeed. It was a recorded world first. Um, there were a few different sort of motivational talks and a UK theatre tour, TED Talks. And, you know, there was a little bit of attention from the media, Um that I noticed. So I started to share more of this journey online because that wasn't really my thing. So I had to really learn onto, you know, the whole social media and sort of monetizing myself as a, as a brand that, you know, this wasn't me. Um, but I had to learn and I had to learn fast. We tried to get a book off the ground, but, but I failed. We tried to get a documentary off the ground, but I failed at that. Um, and it was time to go again. I thought we can't just be relying on this sort of one hit wonder, I wasn't known as me. I wasn't known as Ash. I was known as the, the the crazy guy that walked across Mongolia. So I was like, right, that's not good branding. We need to do it again, but somewhere new. Um, and yeah, and, and pretty much by that same method, we I did Madagascar. Madagascar turned out to be crazier. And then the big one being, and the most recent being Mission Yangtze. So I... Uh... I can't remember which video it was, but this, it, I think it was Madagascar and correct me if I'm wrong, but I've been kind of on this just mental, I'm just trying to understand as humans and you, you actually mentioned you were reading Sapiens on Rogan as well. So I read that maybe a year or two ago and it just, it's, yeah, did you read it? it's crazy. It's so it? good, man. It just, it's like, it really makes me just rethink just 
you know, humans as a species, yeah. you know? Yeah. It makes things feel pretty insignificant at the same time, doesn't it? It, it does. It totally You're does. Like, no. It's no. just the scale of time. It's just so hard to comprehend. I think we're so, oh, it really is. you know, but yeah. you talked about, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you talked about kind of learning to hunt and gather with, with the tribes or the people in Madagascar mm-hmm. and the question I want to ask was what did your version of being a hunter gatherer look like? And what did you learn from it in the sense of like humans as a species and us in, in our kind of wild, you know, most primal habitat? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think the time where it really stood out most and, and had the biggest impact on me was probably in Myanmar okay. with that community there. Okay. Uh, Madagascar was the same, but I, I kind of knew what was coming. But with Myanmar, I, I kind of, I rocked up, you know, I was in the jungle. It, everything was very unfamiliar. You know, I was, I was dirty. I was smelly. Um, there were like weird insects all around me. You know, there were rumors of like boars and, and tigers could, could linger in the jungle. Um, snakes and spiders. I remember this funky looking caterpillar um, that the local Thai guy um, as we were walking to the community, he sort of held us back with his machete and like picked this caterpillar up with his machete and flicked it. And I was like, whoa, that must have been pretty dangerous. <laughs> you know, so it was, it was all of this. At first, it was all of this. Um, and I was really uncomfortable. It, it just wasn't, you know, there was no luxury about it at all. You know, I, I was in an environment that was potentially harmful, dangerous. And that's how I how I first saw it. I remember the first night when I was sleeping, I woke up uh, middle of the night and we sort of so we were we were camped next to a river and we had built a, a bamboo shelter. So it was a shelter using bamboo and banana leaves as uh, like a slanted roof in case it rains, the water pours off and banana leaves on the floor as our bedding. And I remember waking up and, you know, this banana leaf that I was sleeping on, it had this sort of ridge either side, of course. And I looked down to my left and on this ridge, I saw big red ants. They were (laughs) almost like an inch in length and they were all marching along my bed, effectively. You know, massive ants. I'd never seen anything like it. And I'm this 19-year-old boy, just like this teenager, effectively (laughs) like, what the fuck? (laughs) And I... I couldn't really sleep. I was like, oh, geez, I need to work out how to get up slowly without, uh, you know, annoying them. And, uh, and then it was the smoke from the fire and it was little flies and mosquitoes. I just, it was weird, man. It was just a different environment. But as the days went by and it, it was, it was, I think it was two nights later, the same thing happened again where I woke up and I saw all of these ants um, and I, I just clicked right there. And then I looked up, I saw these ants and realized, you know what, this is, this is our natural home before all of these brick houses, you know, in these big cities, we used to do this every day for, for, for millions of years, you know, what 2.5 million years ago and the sapiens, they said that we originate from roughly. And I'm like, this, this is, this is home. Um, and I realized I looked down at these ants and they weren't bothering me. They were just using the ridge of my bedding as a shortcut to get where they needed to go. They weren't bothered about me. And at that point, that's when I told myself that I need to not bother about them. And I actually went back to sleep 
And it was probably that next morning, that's when I noticed a big change. And that's when I experienced truly that saying of the more uncomfortable you make yourself, the more comfortable you become. You know, I was uncomfortable with the, the you know, the dirt in it. I was smelly. It was such foreign environment. It was ants on my bed. But then all of a sudden, I just dropped my shoulders. I went back to sleep. I was I was getting comfortable with my surrounding. And I think that's when I, when I clicked and, and thought, wow, if this is after only a few days, you know, no wonder these locals, you know, live here. They're walking around barefoot. They're not worried about no caterpillars because they know their situational awareness is on point. They're not going to step anywhere they shouldn't. You know, they always sort of know what to look for, what's edible, what's not. And that's when I realized that that is truly a skill that takes, you know, a long time for you to hone in, hone into just that survival instinct, I would say. I would say we all have it as well. It's something we do all have. I have seen it time and time again where people have joined me on my expedition and I've watched them. I call it break into your wild side. All right. So I've watched them go from the transition. It normally takes a week or two of being uncomfortable, being scared, feeling vulnerable. But then as time goes on, they get used to it. They get comfortable with the uncomfortable. They switch to their wild side, which is their natural instinct. And, you know, all of a sudden they're, they're not asked about having a wash. They'll eat whatever. They're not too worried. They'll walk with blisters, with painful feet. Um, and, you know, they're sort of becoming their own hardcore version of themselves, effectively. And that's what I saw with these tribal communities is they are hardcore in every way. And, you know, this is the jungle. For me, it was a foreign environment, but I got used to the fact that for them, it's home and it was once everyone's home you know a uh, bit of a long answer a bit of a long story but I think that's when that's probably the biggest impact I was like wow you know why am I so scared of this environment I don't need to be this is this is safe this has helped us survive before we had all of this madness surrounding us you know oh totally no you just you made me think of you know my first season in the wilderness I man, I was scared the first you know where was that? That was uh, it was in the mountains of California. So if you're familiar with right. like Yosemite National Park, um, oh nice. I was south of there. I actually did right. work in Yosemite. Um, I was a ranger there for kind of a half season, but essentially, you know, I, I to really look around and get about. Yeah, man. Yeah, and uh, I just remember being so scared and uncomfortable that first maybe month or so. Yeah, and then by the end of it, you're just sleeping on the ground, no tent, and you just really kind of got into this rhythm of the wild. And yeah. then, you know, you made me think like I started hunting, um, this was like 10 years ago, but I remember yeah. the first time out, man, it was like, I had no idea what I was doing. I just, you know, this was in Montana and you're riding around trucks with, I was firefighting and everyone, it was the culture there. So I, I got a lot of kind of education, but I'd never done it. Right. But like you said, it was like that first time out, it was like, this part of my brain turned on that it was there. It was always there, but it had never been turned on. It's like, Oh man, this is what I'm like supposed to do. You know? Yeah. 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 Right. It's like, it takes a little while, but then it does, it, it comes out of, of everyone. We, we do all have it, you know, it's just, we choose, I don't know, maybe I don't know what it is. Um, it, it's just covered in a, in a layer of dust, you right. know? Right, right. And I think we all say we don't have it, but until until we really push ourselves and throw ourselves in the deep end, 
you know, that dust will always remain um, until we do something out of our comfort zone and, and, and then it comes through and you're like, wow, never knew I had, never knew I was made out of that kind of substance. Right. Right. And that actually, I think this is a good segue because I was curious, you know, with, between Mongolia and Madagascar and the Yangtze, you know, you're in these wild places and you're coming across people that live, you know, totally outside of kind of that Western high tech world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, probably almost a hundred percent of, I, well, not probably a hundred percent of people listening to this live in that high tech world. Right. But yeah. I'm yeah. curious of, is there anything that you envied about the lives of these people that live kind of that more just primal kind of in touch with the wild, uh, like, was there anything you envied about the lives of these people you came across? Um, I would say the whole sort of simplicity of it. Okay. You know, they're not overly, overly stressed. Um, they haven't got to meet deadlines. They're always in the moment, you know, they're probably, well, no, they definitely are making the most of the loved ones being around them. Um, you know, cause they're thrown in that moment with each other without outside influence or technology to interfere or, or get in the way. Um, and so, yeah, there were certain, certain elements that, you know, is like, wow. Yeah. But again, you've got that side where you do look at the environment and you're like, this is, this is hardcore. Uh, you know, they're the real unsung heroes. On my journey, I, I've literally only just been skirting through. I'm in the environment, in the hardcore environments for a short period of time, whereas these guys live there. Um, and so there is that element of, oof, you know, I don't know if I would want that. I don't know if I would want to live. And And I was thinking of the things that they're also missing out on, but they could easily point back their finger and, and, and shout an awful lot about what we're missing out on. And maybe what we're missing out on is, is maybe the most important things in life. Um, but yeah, no, it is interesting. It's interesting to see those different lives. Right. It's just, it's like, I feel like our tendency, you know, in the West, it's like we're constantly adding complexity. And as you said, it's, it's that simplicity is where you really get to kind of, just truly soak up those moments of those really, I guess, simple moments for lack of a better word that really, you know, bring about this high level of joy. So it's just, it's something I relate on a lot, you know, having, you know, nothing similar to what you've done, but I've I've spent a lot of time outside and it's, uh, yeah, I go back and forth. I've got a family and two kids now, which it just, it makes it harder to, you know, strip things down to that, their elements, but it's fun to chat about. That's for sure. Yeah, no, it is, isn't it? It really is. And I think it is good to, to, you know, dive into that world, even if it's only temporary, even if it's a weekend or a week. You know, I think there is something that when you're out in nature or you're with a family that live a completely different life, it's almost, almost grounds you and reconnects you. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think that's uh, important for everyone to, to do or try at least once. For sure. This is the people you would run into that those more rural, like wild people, did you feel like they had some sort of wisdom or knowledge that they knew about life that we'd kind of forgotten or didn't know in the West? Mm. Yeah, that's a good one. I think that, I think in general that they, 
they're probably more in tune with their with their bodies, aren't they? Because if you think if they get ill or poorly, they don't have someone to tell them what's really going on. Maybe their you know their their mum or their grandmum, you know their elder. Um, but they have to really listen to their to their body more, and that's what I really love about my expeditions is that really gets me in tune. I have to listen to every little niggle because a niggle could be a big problem in the long run. Um, and so I think with these guys, they're just in tune with with the surrounding world, with nature, with the wildlife, with the environment, with the weather, with themselves, with the you know. Right. Um, and so yeah, they are wise to to that extent for sure. It's kind of like what always boggles my mind is is it the North um, North Senator? Am I pronouncing that right? North Senator Island. Oh, Sentinel. Or yeah, Sentinel is Island. That it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've got like the oldest tribe. I think sixty thousand years they've been on that small island for. Uh, and I hear. I don't know if it's a rumor. I think there are. There's. You know, you can Google it, and it's out there. But I heard that. You know, with the big tsunami that happened, I think was 2007. Right, right, right. I heard that with that big tsunami that happened, and obviously it, it, it hit Thailand, India, Sri Lanka, all of these places really hard, that the Indian government sent out helicopters and they pretty much wrote off the tribe. They said there's no way that that tribal community can survive that. They would have been absolutely, you know, the whole island would have been flooded. It's just only small, the wave would have ran straight through it. Uh, and then they went back there and they saw like this bamboo structure leading up higher than the jungle canopy um, that wasn't there like a certain amount of weeks ago or a couple of months ago. And they, it was almost like that this tribal community knew that this, this tsunami was coming. And because they said you can't construct that within a few hours, this takes at least a week or two. Okay. And it's kind of like they built that. And what they did is they climbed up that, let the tsunami pass and came back down when it was safe to come down. And it was kind of like, and they connected to an instinct that, we've now lost, you know, like how birds fly. Birds are always the first sign of like danger. Right. Like the Jurassic Park movies. It's yeah. like, oh, there's birds flying. There must be something coming from the forest. Right, right. <laughs> it's, um, it was almost like that. And, you know, I, I remember Googling that and could see evidence to suggest that, yeah, they, they had built something in advance to climb up to the jungle canopy, let the wave drive through and come back down. That's and so, so wild, you know, man. maybe to answer your question, yeah, maybe we, they are a, a lot more connected. They've held on to their instinct where we don't need to rely on it as much anymore because, you know, because what's a rainstorm going to do to, we, we're living in a, if, it, if a rainstorm's coming, then great. And then we've got that technology to, to find out that anyway. So we rely so much on technology that maybe we have gotten rid of our own natural instincts which we must have had to be able to survive as long as we have survived for oh absolutely I, you know i think i think humans are exceptional at, we're we're so good at pattern recognition and when you're in an environment like you know whether it's the mountains the islands whatever i think mm -hmm. you, you you're just your body tunes into patterns and it becomes almost subconscious but i that's what i've noticed hunting more than anything is just noticing patterns of tracks and the terrain and things like that. And, you know, yeah. you kind of start, you kind of almost doing this like probability calculation subconsciously. So I could totally see how, you know, maybe there was some signal from tectonic plates shifting or whatever that they could pick up on. And, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't uh, discount that at all, man. Yeah. It's mad. It's mad. Who knows? Who knows? 
But, Can't even ask them, can we? <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, uh, I, I thought we were going to talk. I, I was really psyched to talk to you about training, which I kind of want to segue to now. But what – so the first question I'll ask is what – what is the physical culture like in Wales? And as far as like, how do people relate to fitness and training and how is that a part of most people's lives? Mm, yeah, I think fitness, you know, health and fitness in general here in the UK is, um, is big. You know, I think there's a, I think there's an awful lot of lazy people here that, uh, <laughs> that, that don't put so much priority on it or into it. Um, but there definitely is to a certain degree, a lot of people who do prioritize it, um, and do get out in the mornings and train, do watch their diet and look at what they eat. Um, but it's, yeah, it's, it's, I'm always out. Like for me, it's, it's the perfect environment to train and for any expedition abroad, abroad, you know, it's normally wet, it's windy, it's cold, it's muddy. Um, you know, this little island gets absolutely battered by by the weather. But uh, for me, that's perfect to training where I think a lot of people just skip training outside sure, and, sure. and stick to the indoor gym um, or to the local mountains that we've got. But yeah, it's quite, it's a big thing, I would say. A lot okay. of outdoors in, in Wales. Okay. The- um, a lot, you know, you can get out in the sea and do your water sports. You can get, go out onto the, the lake. We've actually got there, I think it was one of the first sort of man-made surf areas where it's in the mountains. Okay. So you, in the mountains, you've got this big lake that they've turned into a surfing o- arena. Oh, no way. Um, you know, this big wave pool, if you like. Uh, and so that's pretty cool. That's not too far. And that's like right next to the highest mountain in Wales as well. So like you can surf, you can <laughs> trek, you can mountain bike. But, you know, we just don't have that that good weather. Yeah. Builds character, though. Yeah, right? <laughs> So what, how did you, like, I, I went through your Instagram and I, I've, I put a decent amount of research into just under, you know, trying to get a little more background, but it sounded like you were very self-motivated just to train and experiment on your own. How did that start? Yeah. From a young age, probably from school, you know, how, how I mentioned, like I was more into sports than adventure at right. a younger age, um, being into sport, the, the training had a big part to play with that, um, you know, I remember just coming back from, from school, maybe I was what, 15, 14 or 15, like banging out like 1000 sit-ups. Um, <laughs> just, I, I would maybe, maybe full of energy, maybe a little bit of ADHD there as well, if you like, <laughs> but I would be a little bit, you know, energetic and, you know, had this, this, a bit of a multi-gym that I was working on and I just loved it. Trial and error. I was looking, you know, as I started to develop it, I went into boxing. So I was a boxer here in Wales as well. And so I was learning a lot from that. And then I'd research online, like uh, diet, nutrition, what the body needs, how to fuel it, uh, recovery time, best ways to, um, to train. And I was looking at, you know, with the weightlifting, but I was looking at also calisthenics and, you know, for me, what I I still hold to this day that I that I held back then when I was fourteen, maybe even younger, is very strong on the calisthenics, you know, body weight exercises, uh, in which you know you can always just whack on a heavy vest or a rucksack, and you can bulk via calisthenics as well. But for me, it was all rounded. It was it was ticking off all components. 
if I was to build my body, you know, maybe I wouldn't be as practical. I was kind of like, if I can tick off all components where I have great flexibility, agility, speed, balance, coordination, um, reaction time, endurance, the lot, then that's the direction that I really wanted to go. So I sort of implemented uh, a circuit and, and a training routine that ticked all of these boxes. So I wasn't big. I wasn't small. I was just in the middle, but I was very practical, kind of like functional training, if you like. For sure. Um, and it turns out that that's actually really good for expeditions as well, especially if there's river crossings over crocodile infested rivers or if it's pulling, you know, 18 stone up over the mountains in a trailer. And yeah. So um, it just worked so well. You know, the funny thing is when I was working in Thailand, just before I did my Mongolia trip, I had to move back to Wales. Um, I moved back in with my parents. I had about $200 to my name. Um, I couldn't afford no gym membership. I just about managed to get sponsorship for the expedition in Mongolia. And I, all of the training that I was doing was in my back garden. I had a tractor tire that my uncle dropped off. So that was for free. I had a sledgehammer and I would be doing, I'd, I'd be flipping that tractor tire. I'd be beating it with the sledgehammer. I'd be working on my Muay Thai still from Thailand, push-ups, pull-ups, sit-ups, building up my legs, working on my durability and the training in my back garden helped me to survive and succeed on the Mission Mongolia expedition. <laughs> yeah. So it was so effective. I was like, heck, let's let's continue this training routine for Madagascar and then for the Yangtze. <laughs> yeah, word, man. I've watched I watched a few of the videos you out there. It's like I'm envious of that. I I, I uh when I was in the wilderness, I built like kind of a I'll call it a wild gym, like squatting logs and throwing rocks nice. around and things like that. Yeah. And uh Seeing you out there, I'm like, oh man, I just I miss having that outdoor training environment, you know. And yeah, got you, yeah, yeah. And it's tough, you know. It, it you know, some days you wake up, some days I wake up, and I'm just like, oh man, you know, I've got to, I've got to do this. But again, I love that saying: we can't always be motivated, but we can be disciplined. And I don't think a normal gym uh, for myself it would train me, you know, just as physically. Sure. Mentally, I don't think it would train me as as mentally because waking up in the morning here and getting outside in minus five, whether it's snowing or raining, um, flipping the tractor tire, you know, it takes a little bit more mental toughness to agree with yourself that you're going to put yourself out in that that mini rainstorm right now and uh, and flip the damn tractor tire. <laughs> right, right. Well, I, I, you know, I love your, I love how you use the word durability training, you know, because mm. to me and just thinking off the fly here now, but to me, that durability training is more like it's as much about the physicality as it is about the mental side, you know? Yeah. You're just maybe, like, maybe even more so. No yeah, probably. Maybe more, probably 70% mental, you know, 70% mindset, 30% physical. Uh, but it's the physical training that helps to build your mental. So right. they go hand in hand, if that makes sense. For You've sure. got to be durable um, in mind and body, you know? For sure, for sure. And so you, you've you done all your own programming. Do you ever work with a coach or anything like that? Or are you just Ash, the, the yeah, mad I, training I would scientist. like to. I would definitely like to maybe involve, you know, maybe for the next big thing. Um, because... Um, you should never stop learning. Um, I certainly don't know it all. What I do know um, is that my training routine works for me, but maybe we can enhance it. Maybe we can develop it, make it, make it bigger, make it better, 
you know, so that I am um, even stronger mentally and physically for the for the next big thing. Um, and so, yeah, that is a possibility where we uh, bring in someone else or a couple of others and um, take on their their knowledge and advice on how I can, you know, incorporate that into my routine. Totally. We, you know, it made me think of hearing you talk about it. it made me think of um, is it Ross Edgley? Am I saying his name right? The guy that swam yes. around. Like he, you guys just had kind of this similar. You were just on that same wavelength of the durability and kind of you're doing endurance. You're doing everything, you know. It's just that general that GPP all around mm. fitness, you know. But yeah. uh, what I I watched the video you put up about training for adventure, and you talked about your kind of your quote unquote warm up, which was like 150 pull ups, all these push. <laughs> you know, it's like crazy volume. Is that were you doing that like every day? What did that look like? Yeah, to, to be honest, that, um, that is my go-to. You know, wherever I am, um, I can always try to do. So it is, so it's pull-ups, push-ups, and dips. And that is, that can be a full workout on its own. Right. You know, that you, you're, you're done after that. Uh, but the difference is, you know, I always say whether I succeed or fail on this next expedition depends on how much I push myself um during the training and so i will do 10 sets of this varies depending on on um like the training camp if i've got like six months to the next expedition i try to go easy because i don't want to push the body too much right um but if it's like a month and a half before and it's a big training camp put in place before an expedition it will be 15 wide arm pull-ups slow all the way up all the way down it will be straight down into my push-ups and it will be 15 to 20 on my fists, legs raised all the way down, all the way up slowly, and then straight into dips for maybe 10 or 15 dips slowly again, all the way down, all the way up. That's one set. I've tried to do 10 full sets of that. Um, and there's something about, you know, pull-ups alone are, I think, my favorite exercise you know it aligns the spine it corrects your posture it works on so many muscles but it's also the most daunting you know when you stood underneath like a you know even when you were doing your outdoor workout i guess you did probably pull-ups on a tree or something well i had to build like a the branches were all bent because it's high altitude so the snow you know they're all so i made oh, like yeah, a yeah, yeah. kind of a trapeze bar and threw it over you know Oh, that's ace. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then when you look up, though, to that and you've got to jump on, even that is mentally that it's the most daunting exercise. Right, right, right. For sure, for sure. Um, but um, but I love it. And so after that, you, you, you know, you're pumped, everything, your forearms, you are pretty ruined. But that's the beginning. And then I'll, you know, I'm kind of fully warmed up. Then I'm pretty exhausted by then, kind of burnt out. Um, but then I'll, I'll go into the, the full routine then. Um, but if I'm traveling and I don't have access to much, um, I'll find a way to, to do that because if there's no pull-up bar, there's always the lap pull-downs. Right, right. If there's no dips, you can do it kind of on the edge of your bed in a hotel room. So I'm able to still uh, adjust and adapt to that, um, but then incorporating legs as well so you don't go a little bit too top-heavy, you know? For sure, for <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. Can't, can't skip leg day. Can't skip leg day. <laughs> That's one thing. I always love that, like the – the cre the creativity side of training, like how can you kind of use your environment that's not you know a perfect gym, but how can you be creative and you know mm. make these exercises work in a new way, you know, and still get 
still getting yeah. in a great session, but oh man, yeah, there's always a way for sure. There's always a way. I remember even traveling uh, when I was nineteen, twenty. You know, for the first round of travels, um, me and my friend would sometimes just work up a routine in in a hostel. You know, in a in a in a guest house where we would put weighted stuff inside our rucksack, All right. and we'd be using our rucksack as a as a dumbbell. You know, or throwing over our back for squats or sure. push ups. You can do anywhere on the edge of your bed for sit ups and. So it's, um, there's always a way, yeah, you just got to get a little bit more creative, right, right? but if it's all in the same room, you know, it's, it's, it's hassle free. You've not got to drive to the gym and come back, you know, it's there. Right. right. <laughs> well, it, it's interesting too. You mentioned like the practicality of like more of the calisthenics and that durability training. Cause I, I just, I think about like a bodybuilder, you know, they have this impressive physique, but you know, looking at someone like you, it's just like, there's this wild, I, I think wildness is the best word I can use to describe. Like you just look more wild than someone that's built. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. you just look like you're meant to be out there, you know? So I, oh, yeah. it, it, like, yeah, it no, makes sense. Mm. Yeah. It's happened. It's weird. Cause I use like certain examples for it. Like I remember in Madagascar, we had this river crossing. Um, and I've always been keen on even forearm exercises, you know, for grip. Right, right. You know, for if you're holding on to something or holding on to a ledge or whatever, I want to be, you know, all around function. I I don't want to be falling to my death thinking, damn, I should have trained my <laughs> forearms. <laughs> and so I remember on this nighttime river crossing, um, it was the Mavav River, it was the cyclone season. We'd been up in the jungle for weeks, just sort of hunting, gathering. Um, we had ran, we had ran low on, on foods. The forest had been burnt down, so there was nothing to hunt or to gather. And anyway, we had to keep going. And there was four of us, and we were trying to get to the next community, which was on the other side of this big, mighty Mavav River, which was over flooded in cyclone season, and it's famous for crocodiles. It was nighttime, and we had nothing but our head torches. We had to get across that river tonight because there's another storm on the way, and if that hits it's just uncrossable for the next few days at least because it would be then too dangerous and too reckless. Whereas at least this evening we thought it is dangerous, but we stand a much better chance. Anyway, we formed a human chain. We all gripped hands, you know, our torches just shining in each other's face, the roar of the river so loud that we're having to shout to each other to to hear each other. Uh, And one of my guides, he knew this crossing. He knew where the rocks were um, in the river that would keep our head above the the water. But if we missed those rocks, you know, we're gone. Not only do we lose the footing, but with the weight of the rucksack and with the force of the the river, we're gone. Um, And so, you know, it was was very risky. We linked arms. And as we were crossing, trying to see every single foothold, Suzanne, uh, this photographer that joined us for that expedition, uh, she lost her footing and she, you know, she almost went. She was in the grasp of mine and Max's hand. Uh, and, you know, each time her head went under, she had to kick up from the bottom of the river for her head to come back up. And that's why she would take a breath <gasps> before she was down again because the rucksack was pulling her, the, the river was over her head. It was it was hideous, you know. And each time she'd come up, she'd be screaming, get a breath, and then boom. And I knew at that point, that this is a girl, you know, and I, this is an, uh, someone on my expedition that I have full responsibility over. If she goes, you know, it, it's down to me. 
And I remember thinking, if I let go of her grip now, or if Max, my guide, lets go of her grip, not only will the weight of the rucksack pull her down under river, um, which obviously could drown her, if the river pushes her, there's rocks everywhere. So if she's lucky enough not to drown, if she's lucky enough not to bash her head on all of the rocks, then she's being taken right into the, the crocodile territory area, which is just down the way. It's nighttime. We wouldn't be able to hear her because the river's too loud. We couldn't see her because it's pitch black. And all of this, whilst she's in my hand, like kicking up from the bottom, like we could almost feel ourselves going and, you know, our, our grit was almost going, but I don't know how, but that last pull from both of us, she was able to make it back onto the rock and we managed to get across. I do not know how still to this day, you know, managed to get across to that river. She was in bits, you know, she was crying. Um, I was full of adrenaline sort of showering. Right, right, right. you know? <laughs> how close was that? Um, but yeah, again, a little, you know, memory for me thinking that I used to, I used to train all the time for that grips, you know, holding on to pull-ups, all of it. And if one of us, you know, Max, I didn't need to worry about anyway. He's a, he's a local guy. He's, he's as tough as they come. Um, but yeah, one slip and she would have been dead. Um, and so that's kind of when I'm training, I visualize sort of every single scenario that I possibly can to make sure that I'm at my peak performance to be able to handle it and, and overcome it type of thing. So I, I guess I never want people to think that I'm doing all of these expeditions recklessly. Um, I, it's meticulous planning, you know, it's attention to detail. It's studying and researching every single thing that could possibly go wrong and trying to learn how I could possibly overcome that right. challenge or obstacle in order, in order to survive, you know? I love that concept of training to be useful, you know, mm. and I, I had kind of a selfish question is I saw your, you posted about your one arm pull-up training. You have the knotted rope. Yes. How, how did that, like, how did that progression go? How long did that take? And it, you know, it was, it was surprisingly fast. Okay. It was surprisingly fast. Yeah. So obviously you've got the, the rope hanging off the bar and I think I've got three or four knots tied in. Um, and you start at the top and it's kind of like you've got two hands doing a normal pull up, but then the further you get down, grabbing the knots, um, more pressure is applied to that one arm still holding onto a bar. And then eventually you're doing, I think it took two or three weeks okay. until I could eventually just let go of that rope. And I was, I was mastering the, the one handed pull up. Um, and with that, that's probably another example of because I'm training so much, it can get boring sometimes, sure, you know, sure. it can be like, oof again really but if i'm training for a goal and sometimes the goals will be random it could be a one-handed push-up one-handed pull-up it could be the muscle-up it could be the the piston squat um you know all of this that excites me and right. so I'll, I'll train to work towards something and that helps to motivate me okay one thing i wanted to ask you was how did your body respond on these expeditions how does your body respond to the daily trekking and the daily mileage and you know sapiens they talk about this you talked about a little bit on rogan but you know walking four thousand miles seems impossible to a lot of people but if you look if you take a step back it's like that's how you know humans covered the globe so i'm curious just how did your body respond to that daily input of you know that high mileage yeah you know what it got fairly it got fairly used to it. 
Um, you, obviously, you'll always have the the pains and the niggles for sure. You know, right. the blisters, the toenails falling off, <laughs> the rubs from your rucksack, um, the fear from the elements. You know, the, right. the sketchiness. I was, don't know how many times I was almost taken out by landslides. <laughs> Um, you know, but, but in general, like the impact from the trekking, from the walking you do, again, that's part of, as we spoke at the beginning, breaking into your wild side, your body does go through that sort of pain threshold. It does, it hits a barrier where, you know, a lot of people kind of say, oh, how do you get rid of blisters? No matter what footwear you have, you will always, always, always get blisters. If you don't get blisters, you're not walking far enough or for long enough because you will definitely get blisters. There's no cure. Um, there's a way where you can help, you know, ease the pain of the blisters, and you know, uh, with tape and whatnot. Some some people say compete helps, but you will face that until your feet become really tough. You know, when I say that, like you're like if you think of our feet because they're not working all the time in the outdoors they're soft right now right. so when you're then knocking up big mileage your soft feet need to break into their hard cells so they need to harden so the process from being soft to being hard is the painful part but then once they're hard and you've got like an extra half centimeter of, of skin on your soles and you know you you rubbed your feet um, on every inch of your foot, you know, you, it, they do become tougher for sure. Okay. But then you do have the demands, you know, I remember they were really tough in the cold weather. They had adapted, but then no matter how thick, you know, or how tough my feet were when I was then trekking in the heat mm. and my feet began to sweat, the water would soften the skin and I would be susceptible to more blisters. And I'm like, damn, eight months later, <laughs> And I'm still getting blisters. <laughs> so it's a hard one. It's a tough one. But in general, you do sort of, your body does does adapt. I don't know how how healthy it would be if you could just continue that for, for years, you know? Sure, sure. I think you would then face, you know, certain consequences um, to your skeleton, you know, to the, maybe the spinal structure. But depending, that's sure. only if you carry in a heavy rucksack. I guess if you're not carrying or pulling anything, you, you're probably all right. And it's probably super healthy. Um, but if you're carrying a heavy rucksack, the beauty is with China is I started with a really heavy rucksack. But then as I would enter or as I would break through the east, I'd be coming across more towns until eventually I was coming across cities almost every day because the population of China that I could get rid of the rucksack. And I was carrying nothing but like a tiny little, you know, tiny little day bag okay. on my back, for example probably four or five kilograms wasn't heavy at all. Um, but that wasn't the case with Mongolia. <laughs> that damn 260 pound trailer was with me the whole damn way. <laughs> I was thinking about that. Like to me, what would have killed me was just the, vi like the constant vibration coming out. Did that, yeah. did that kind of just shockwave go into you every step or? Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I think you were probably the first person that has actually bought that up ever is there is that you're right and you do feel you know i had no suspension either right um and so so it's connected to the harness the harness is, is on you so yeah there are these constant you know hits on your body and pulls and if you hit a rock with one of the tires on the right it's going to spin it around which hits your hips and knocks you so that's why again agility was important i was doing quite a bit of agility 
um, and inner core train. I needed my core, my core to be rock solid for that. And I knew that my core would be ripped apart, you know, pulled in every direction. Um, and if I wasn't agile, I would pull muscles. I would injure my spine. Or, so I just needed to be, uh, to, to be ready for that, really, for the demands of that, of that trailer. Um, but yeah, that was, you know, I had no brakes either. So even pulling up the mountains in the Altai mountains, there were times that I, that I thought if I lose my footing now, <laughs> I'm strapped into this trailer, which weighs certainly a lot more than me. Uh, and it has no brakes. Oh, right. There were, wow. I didn't even thought of that. Yeah. So if it pulls, if I lose my footing or slip and it already gets the momentum of pulling me down, I right. am, I'm going all the way down. Right. Dang, man. You, you kind of, I was going to ask like, how long do you think you could sustain like walking like that? And you kind of answered it with, it was really like the load dependent. You felt like if you had the backpack, it kind of limited you. But once you kind of went to that day pack, you felt kind of like you could go forever as long as there's food and drink, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's the issue with Mongolia. Um, you know, obviously there were two completely different expeditions with Mongolia. I knew that I wouldn't be coming across as many locals. Sure. And I knew that being in the Gobi Desert, I wouldn't be coming across um, water. And so my biggest concern was making sure I had a lot of food and I had a lot of water. And I think on the back of my trailer, um, you know, it was a, it was a 20 liter water container that I had. Oh, wow. So that's already 20 kilograms right. um, full of water. And that would need to last me to the next water source, to the next water well. And that could be a, a week, maybe two weeks away. Um, and so, yeah, that's why I don't think it's possible to do Mongolia with a rucksack. Um, hence why I took the trailer, okay. but with, uh, China following a river, water was obviously plentiful. Sure, sure. Um, you know, I'm in a bad way if I'm, <laughs> if I can't get access to, to, to water, I have lost and I'm definitely not following any river. Um, and so, yeah, that was slightly easier in terms of, um, the weight that I was pulling or, or carrying. Okay. Although saying that, you know, I really struggled with the rucksack as well because there was so much in the rucksack with the Yangtze journey. Right. I think it came to 30 or 35 kilograms. I'm not too oh, sure. Oh, wow. That that's, that's like, uh, seven, well, 32 is uh, 70, 72 pounds, I believe. So that's, I mean, oh, yeah. that's full on, man. Yeah, yeah. That was heavy. And I'm not really a big guy either, you know, uh, what, 11 I weigh 10 and a half stone. Okay. 10 and a half to 11 stone. Okay. About 5'10". Okay. You know, so I had to train to really be able to, but it was fine. You know, I'm a lot stronger than I look. I sort of went at it. I was like, yeah, let's do this. Um, but yeah, you do, you do feel, you do feel it on your back. <laughs> oh, for sure. No, I'm in the same way, man. I'm a, I'm, I'm a little guy. I'm like 5'8", you know, buck yeah. 50, 150 pounds. But, uh, oh, yeah. You know, just care, like when I was firefighting or in the wilderness, like just the low, like the, the percentage of my body weight I'm carrying compared to someone that's, you know, 175, yeah. 200, just so much more. But I guess it's kind of to start wrapping up, man. I want to be respectful of your time. What, how did on the Yangtze specifically, or even I guess on the other mm -hmm. journeys, but to me, the Yangtze is a, is a good, uh, framework to think of, but how did how did people's perception of your expedition change from the start and those the upper headwaters to once you got down into more of the, the cities? How did people react to what you were doing? 
You mean the people following online or the locals? The, like good the question. Yeah, the locals. How did the locals react? Oh, yeah, yeah. So the locals were the locals were amazing. You know, at the beginning, it was quite sensitive. Um, you know, it went from it went from mission Yangtze to mission escape and evade. <laughs> we were trying to escape <laughs> the sensitive area that we were in. Okay. Because we were pulled in by the police about I think five times because the locals kept snitching on us. And so we were trying to escape that sensitive area, but we were trying to evade the locals. Literally, we were we would often sleep um, hidden from any white felt tents up ahead and we would wake up super early and sneak past uh, before they woke up and trying to not wake their Tibetan mastiff up. Um, but then as we, you know, as we progressed and we weren't in the sensitive area, we found that the locals were really friendly. We still, there was still a lot of police trouble probably for the first five months of the journey. Oh, wow. Yeah. Maybe, maybe half of the journey there was still police trouble, but, but it began easier with the police. They weren't as strict. Okay. Um, uh, but then, you know, the locals, again, amazing, really hospitable, really friendly. Um, you know, they would often come after me to give me, like, food to take away if they noticed me in the journey, maybe a hot cup of tea to, to take on my journey. Uh, I remember rocking up to one town on Chinese New Year, and the family invited me in. You know, they it was it was actually a hotel. They invited me in. I stayed there for two nights. Um, they fed me up, and of course, you know, I, I had to pay at the end, so I, I offered to, to pay, and they were like, no, you know, no money, don't offend us. <laughs> Gave me food to take away, and all of it was just on them, and they wished me well. And and then it came to a point where where the city, well, you know, the town, the villages turned to towns, turned to cities, and journalists would be, um following you know they would be welcoming me into the city or they'd be putting like big shout out that i'm entering the city two days from now the locals would join me and walk with me and then walk with me out of the city and it just became super interactive and really engaging we had then chinese celebrities joining and they were live streaming and it's um i'd say the second half was almost completely different to the first half the first half was you know, I was stalked by a pack of wolves for a number of days. Um, there were bears, um, there were landslides, there was flooding. It was just madness. There was the police. I lost uh, 10 of the 16 people that joined me. 10 were evacuated due to altitude sickness or wow. fear of wildlife. And I shut down the expedition. It was getting too dangerous for people to join. Whereas the second half, it was, if anything, it was too much food. I probably put a little bit of weight on, even though I was sure, sure, sure. say. Loads of people joining me, super engaging digitally and, and physically with people joining. Um, promotions, there was book signing events. It just went pretty wild, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's funny seeing the look on your face. Talk about that first half, very kind of serious, intense, almost a little <laughs> solemn. Then it's like party time, you know? Like, yeah. <laughs> Too much food. Right, 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 right. <laughs> oh, man. What it sounds oh. like, I've thought about this a lot. Like hearing you talk about it, it seems like outside of any sort of what I'm assuming is like governmental pressure, you know, the, the snitching, mm. it seems like just. I haven't traveled that much, but the places I have, I found people to be just genuinely good and well-intentioned 
yeah far outside of anything else you know there's always the bad apples but it's, i just i like i like getting that reiterated about humanity as a whole that most yeah. people are good you know yeah for sure man yeah i always say that the locals can even uh, make or break a journey um unfortunately with with all of my journeys uh, the locals have made it even better than what I anticipated it would be. For sure. Um, they've just really been a, a huge part of the journey. You know, that's first and foremost probably why I wanted to travel, to meet people in the first place when I was 19, learn from others, right? Right, right. Um, having these communities sort of take me under their wing and, and show me the ways. Um, and, yeah, I've had no real bad experience. I've had the little niggles where I've had solar panels stolen or I've had, like, the Malagasy locals, especially down south, can be pretty dangerous there, and they've demanded money or, you know, the military held me at gunpoint. Um, you know, I've had little <laughs> scary things like that. But, you know, on the masses, it's what happened maybe five, six times out right. of thousands of good times. So the positives always outweigh the negatives for me. And I know that's not the same with many people, but, you know, the negative of a previous expedition, whether it's catching malaria and almost dying in Madagascar, didn't stop me from pursuing Mission Yangtze, you know, because I remembered all of the positives that came with it. As long as I learn from where I went wrong uh, and adapt and, and do better next time, then I will continue. Um, and here we are still getting started. Mission Yangtze was just a warm up. Or did, did you get, was it falciparum you had? The, yeah, it was. Yeah, okay. falciparum, yeah, okay. uh, with the malaria. So it was the deadliest strain, but it is the only strain that you can clear out of your system. So I no longer have malaria, of course, but you've got to catch it within 24 hours, I think they say. Okay. You're dead. Okay. Back on mine after five days. Oh, <laughs> I was in a bad place. Yeah, I, I can only imagine. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't want to. I don't want to fuck with malaria. I, I just, your vibe, man, is so like, you're just hearing you talk about the adventures and the expeditions. It's just so like, it gets me excited, you know, just you light up every time, you know, I, I can just tell it's like, it's just a part of who you are. And so I really appreciate getting to talk to you. Oh, man. appreciate uh, that. Thank you. Yeah. It's just, yeah. it's just the energy, man. It's, it's hard to find people that just ooze it out like that. So um, quality no i appreciate that buddy i really do yeah. and uh, no thank you for for calling yeah. and hopefully heck we can all get back to um to to many adventures you know big or small after this whole covid pandemic you know every red light turns green so it should all be go right. pretty soon i hope but we uh, will see likewise and in in closing i uh no pressure to share specifics but are you ramping up for something else right now Yes, mate. Yeah, I am. Um, we've been planning it. We've got something really exciting that um, I, I personally cannot wait to share. It is something different. It's not a year long. It's not okay. like a big mammoth sort of mission, if you like. It is a mission, um, but in in a, in a very different way. Um, yeah, so I can't wait. And it's look, it will be this year. Okay. COVID permitted, but it's sure. all it's all for business, so we should have no qualms getting the right business permits to make it happen, regardless. But um, let's see uh, this year, and I should hopefully be able to announce within the next one or two months. So it's quite a fast turnaround. Um, and so, yeah, man. 
We're allowed to make this happen again. Yeah. No, yeah. Stoked to hear the next journey. And yeah, I'd love to, uh, after it's gone down, dive in deep. Yeah. So. Yeah, for sure, man. We will we will make sure we uh, get another get another podcast on the go. Absolutely. And we'll chat about that. Hell yeah. Hey man, I uh, I appreciate you. You're wild and uh take care out there. I'm stoked to follow the journey. No, appreciate that, buddy. All the best and thanks for spending the time. Much appreciated. Hey monkeys, thanks again to Ash Dykes, the Welsh wild man. Really appreciate him taking the time to come on the Live Wild or Die podcast. And monkeys I appreciate you guys. If you're enjoying the show, please share it with your friends, your family, and I'd be eternally grateful if you could take the time to leave a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Very much appreciated, and it helps to grow the monkey family and spread the good word of the wild. So, stoked for the next conversation. Until next time, monkey on.